1: Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: His grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, they all just said to me, no one ever talked about it. We never knew what happened, it was never solved, no one ever discussed it, it was just a family secret. I don't know what happened. I can't help you. Please tell me if you find out anything.
2: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. When a powerful businessman in Alaska is murdered in his bed in 1953, the police believe it might have been a break-in gone wrong, But as details about his personal life make headlines, investigators turn to several new suspects. Author James T. Bartlett tells us the story at the center of his book, The Alaskan Blonde. Set the scene for me. Where are we? What is this time period like?
1: This is 1950s Alaska, 1953, 1954 specifically. And the first thing that I found out that I didn't know was that Alaska was a territory Mm then. It wasn't a state. I, I didn't know that. Um, It didn't become a state until 1959. And that pretty much meant That, as most Alaskans kind of still think today, they were kind of ignored. Most Americans, as I found out, really don't know a lot about Alaska even now. They know it's a very, very long way away. It's way up north, past Canada. Very cold. Very cold. (laughs) Most people would have just said, Alaska, that's way up north, isn't it? Aren't they trying to become part of the US? That's really all that people knew. And so the 50s in Alaska was very much a place that we might recognize in other parts of the world. You know, it was still very strong sort of society rules and expectations. You know, the man was the breadwinner and the woman was the homemaker. They were very common things as well. But Alaska is a very separate place to America. You know, they didn't consider themselves to be really American. They were Alaskans first.
2: So let's get into the story. Tell me about the couple, Cecil and his wife, Diane Wells. They're in Fairbanks, Alaska, right?
1: Yes, that's right. They've been married a few years by this time. They have a young son, Mark. They've been in Fairbanks. Cecil is uh, he's in his early 50s. He's a very successful businessman, what they called in those days. He was a pioneer hmm. of Alaska. He was very well known, especially in Anchorage as well, which is the biggest town by far in Alaska. He was very well known there. He had come up to Fairbanks. He was very well known for his car dealerships. He had mining interests, He had real estate interests. He was a, a very rich, successful man. He'd also been married four times. So he had a number of children already, some who were adult children already. And Diane was, uh, was 20 years younger. She was young and blonde, and she was the fifth wife. And as members of the family told me, she was very different from all his other wives. That's Hmm. what they said, because she was much younger. She was the trophy wife. Mm -hmm. And as such, he bought her lots of furs and jewelry and, you know, they lived very well. But in that same sort of a gilded cage element, I think to an extent, you were expected to behave in a certain way. You were the attractive young wife. You were the glamorous hostess you know, you stayed at home, you looked after the children. It was kind of the deal. And I, I believe their, their relationship was genuine. I'm absolutely sure they had genuine feelings for each other, for sure. They traveled a lot. And they were a glam couple. They were like a sort of A-list couple.
2: How are they an A-list couple in Alaska, though? It just seems like both of these people would feel trapped in an environment that you have described as being sort of rough and rugged.
1: It is very much a challenge. Cecil had been in Anchorage previously. He'd been in Alaska for a number of years mm-hmm. two and four. He was well aware of how that worked and he was seemed to be very comfortable with it. It would have been a big change for her to come there and and it was true that when she came, Cecil asked, believe it or not his uh, his former sister-in-law to sort of be a consort for Diane when mm-hmm. she arrived in Fairbanks because he knew it was going to be a challenge. It was going to be a challenge. you know, this is months of winter where you could be stuck in the house because of the snow. The weather's really difficult. It's going to be very much a lifestyle change. I mean, I've been up to Fairbanks a couple of times. It's a lifestyle to live in Alaska in any level. And I think also the culture there. It's very much a drinking culture, Mm -hmm. very much a male-dominated culture, massively dominated because of the army bases nearby. So there are enormous amounts of men in town rather than a sort of even an equitable parity.
2: Does that equal high crime in this time period?
1: Yeah. A lot of the problems were like we would expect in a town, you know, alcohol, Mm -hmm. gambling, fighting, that kind of thing. There was a lot of crime, robbery. There's a lot of money around. There's a lot of people working there who, you know, not necessarily with gold dust in their pockets, but a lot of people are working there who have money and are getting paid and can't necessarily do a lot with it. You know, during the winter, you can't get out. You can't really go to many places. So there's a lot of people with a lot of money. And there was violent crime as well, especially of a domestic variety. But again, that's the case for everywhere.
2: Tell me about Diane before she meets Cecil. Did you find a lot of information about what her life was
1: like, what her relationships were like? Initially, I thought I was going to be laughing when I tried to look into the story of Diane because I did, like everybody does these days, a a Google search for her to try and find out the story of her. And I came across a hit immediately for obviously her son that she had had with Cecil and a daughter that she'd had from a previous marriage, from her first marriage. I did eventually manage to contact Cecil and Diane's son Hmm. because I managed to find Diane's second daughter, her eldest daughter. That wasn't mentioned in any of the newspaper articles. At the time, Diane had two daughters already. And it turned out she was estranged from them. After her first marriage ended, she never saw her children again, which was extremely sad. I don't think she was allowed to have much contact with her children. So when she met Cecil, it's likely she never discussed that she had two children. Maybe she felt she didn't.
2: Okay, so let me summarize. We've got two people, Diane and Cecil, who are not from Alaska, but they are living in Fairbanks, which is not a very large city by American standards. In the 1950s, very conservative area. She is this bombshell blonde who seems to really love her husband, even though there's quite a big age difference. And then you've got a man on his fifth marriage who is very, very successful. This seems on the surface... Like a good situation going into what turns out to be a very, very big tragedy.
1: Yeah, the night when it all started was 1953, October 17th. Uh, it was early in the morning, that morning actually, uh, Diane bashed on the door of her neighbor. They lived in the Northwood building, which is still there in uh, downtown Fairbanks. It was considered to be the most fancy building of the time. I guess it's what we would call now like a serviced building. Mm-hmm. So early in that morning, she banged on the door of a of a neighbor. And she was crying. She was hysterical. And she said, two men broke into the apartment and shot Cecil and beat me up. The police were called. They came round. Cecil was dead in his bed, shot while he was asleep. Mm. Diane had like a big puffy face, like a split lip, a black eye. She was taken to the hospital and the police investigation began. There was a, a new chief of police. He'd only been in the job a few months. There was a new district attorney but what happened within 24 hours, you know, there'd been the inquest and the autopsy. And it was established that he'd been shot in the head at a relatively close range. One shot? They found two bullets, actually. Okay. They found two bullets. One was still in his head and one was in the bedding. That was her talk. And she said that two men had broken in. She woke up in bed. There was two men standing there. And one had almost immediately shot him. She'd run for the hall or for the front room. He'd grabbed her, hit her over the head with um, like a flower pot, which I guess was the nearest thing to hand. Hmm. And when she woke up, she went into the bedroom. He was dead.
2: Signs of a break-in or no?
1: Well, I mean, you would think a break-in maybe, you know, the chain on the door would be broken or there'd be some sort of big mark or some kick-through of the door. Yeah. Unfortunately, the couple lived on the eighth floor, the top floor of the building, which was unusual. People who are thieving don't usually go to the top floor of a building to steal. They'll usually go to the Ground floor, because that's the quickest exit. Something
2: easier. (laughs) Much easier.
1: There had been a number of home invasion burglaries recently. That had happened. And they had also been home invasion burglaries of rich businessmen. Hmm. Diane said that what had happened was they had must have got a spare key in some way and come through an adjoining door. They had two apartments together. You know, like you get adjoining hotel rooms. right? And sometimes there's a door between them. They had had two apartments, not knocked together, but they owned two. She said that they had gone into one of the other apartments gone through the adjoining door, and that's how they got into the apartment. So it wasn't any break-in per se. But of course, people were then thinking, well, wait, so how did they get into the first apartment? Or right. how did they get keys? Or, you know, people were saying, well, in that case, were they let in? It didn't seem necessarily that much money or jewelry had been taken. The house didn't seem to have been particularly roughed up or anything for someone searching, as two burglars might have done. There were some fingerprints, some bloody fingerprints. But again, this is the 50s, so all they managed to get was... A blood group. They never linked any of the fingerprints to any person. There was obviously Cecil and Diane's in the apartment, but no one else's. They had one other set, but they were never able to find who that third set of fingerprints was. And then within a few days, the police got a tip that she'd been having an affair. Mm. And that was when Johnny Warren came into the picture. And of course, so the police wanted to talk to him immediately. And it emerged that morning in the early hours of that, that he'd left town.
2: Okay, so we have Cecil and Diane asleep. Cecil is shot dead by two men. Diane is beaten up as she's trying to run away, and there is no sign of a break-in. She's theorizing that maybe they came through an apartment, didn't rummage through that apartment to get into another apartment, when it's likely that many people in the building had as much money as Cecil did, I would assume. I mean, this is a wealthier building. Yeah. And the police have picked up a couple of sets of prints, but nothing that's been particularly useful, as is the blood evidence. is not very useful either. And then she has a lover. What is the situation with Johnny that makes him controversial in this story?
1: In this particular story, the controversial element is that he's a black guy. He lived there and was married. He was married to a white woman, Clara. They've been married for quite a few years. He was a traveling musician. He'd been a musician for years since his teens. So it wasn't unusual he was there. Alaska and Fairbanks especially was quite uh, not a party town, But there were a a couple of streets, Second Avenue especially, were well-known for all being bars and restaurants. And so he played a lot. He was a well-known local musician. And it turned out that they maybe had had an affair. There was a great photo, which is in the book, of a big fancy dinner where Johnny is playing the drums in the background on the stage. There's a band on the stage. And you can see all the people sitting at the long tables. And there's Cecil and Diana on one side. And that's supposed to have been the night, Labor Day, the Labor Day dinner where they met for the first time. And he realizing where things were going, he had gone down to Oakland. This is Johnny, right? Johnny, yes. Johnny had gone down to Oakland in California. That was where he traveled to. And he'd gone with two other people. Mm-hmm. Actually, he'd gone with his his young daughter and someone else. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't on the run. He probably got a call or probably read about it or heard about it. And he voluntarily went to the police in Oakland. And he basically talked to them for a long stretch of time, many, many pages of interview. And basically, it was very clear reading from it anyway that they had been having an affair. There was definitely an intimacy between them. He said that they had met a number of times at the wells's apartment even. He even had some love letters. Hmm.
2: So when this person calls in or reports to the police that Diane is having an affair with a black man, Johnny, who is a musician, what is her response?
1: Oh, she she denied it all the way through. I mean, she denied the relationship all the way through. And she also said it was two men who broke in and shot Cecil and beat me up. She said that all the way through right till the end.
2: But she couldn't identify these men.
1: That was the thing. She said uh, they were all dressed in black. The lights were out. I couldn't even see even a scrap of it. You know, they had a coat on up around their neck, not a mask. And as I found out, as, as I'm sure we all know, it's a very common trope that when, you know, two men or one man breaks in and kills someone unexpectedly out of nowhere, The person who's the witness or who was there at the time can never identify them. They always just say it's a stranger. It was a complete stranger and I couldn't tell you anything. It was probably just a guy.
2: Well, and you know, what's complicating about that is that we know now from people who are victims of trauma, survivors of trauma, they often can't identify the person because they're being traumatized. So it's a mixed bag. You have to be very careful about the way you judge the reaction that people have during a crime because, yes, this person could be evasive and giving a vague answer because they've done something wrong, but they also could be so beyond traumatized from being beaten by two strange men and a dead husband that she legitimately can't remember anything.
1: Yeah, and that that's very much the case, because if you see pictures, of which I put a couple of pictures in the book, after the morning of the murder, you see pictures of her, she's got two massive black eyes.
2: Yeah. Do they think that's self-inflicted? All of these injuries that you've listed off. I mean, what do they think happened?
1: As I did the the investigating and talking to people about it, I heard a number of theories about it. And you know, one of them was like, well, you know, she got someone to do that to her, you know, as coverage, or hmm. you no, know, she got she got a friend to beat her up. And I said, well, I guess that's possible, but it takes a lot for someone who knows someone well mm-hmm. to really hurt a friend of theirs. It, it's a lot. Yeah. She had two big black eyes and a swollen face and a cut lip. Someone had definitely beaten her. I mean, who beat her up if it wasn't a burglar? Because, you know, you look at her face and you're like, oh my goodness, that poor woman. You know, she has been badly beaten.
2: How much did they investigate Cecil's business dealings because he was successful and we know that oftentimes that happens through some avenues that might piss people off. Did they investigate whether he had any professional or personal acrimony between people?
1: They did look into it a little. I managed to get the private memoirs of a deputy marshal who was involved in the case at the time obviously he's passed on now, but his daughter gave him to me Wow and he suggested perhaps at the time that a business partner of Cecils might have wanted him killed for the life insurance, which was a hundred grand hmm. but I looked into that and it just didn't make any sense he was worth more alive than dead. Hmm. He wasn't involved in nightclubs or bars or alcohol or anything that might have attracted a, a criminal element. So I was never convinced that it had been something that was like a hit or that it was some business rival and neither were the police. But then, you know, police can get a little, you know, a little bit focused and once once they had the idea that the young wife was having an affair,
0: yeah. the
1: rich husband is dead, she's going to get all his money. Is that what happens? She gets all his money? Well, of course, it never turns out to be that way. She is, of course, the executor of his will. She gets the most of it. His children get a lot of money. And so she was executor. But of course, within two weeks of the murder, she was arrested for it herself. Yeah. So she never had anything to do with any of the administration. And in fact, she was, she was broke. Because, you know, again, in the 50s, you know, she'd have a job. The credit cards. Right. She probably didn't even have her own bank account.
2: What's difficult for me, James, is I keep coming back to the crime scene and thinking about okay, if there are two men there and they're robbing, and that's their goal. And you have the main threat, you know, like if I talk to Paul Holes, who's my co host on Buried Bones, and he talks about eliminating the main threat. And the main threat would be Cecil. But you said that Cecil's found it sounds like he was shot while he was laying there sleeping. Is that the impression you got?
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I put the picture in the book. I mean, he's asleep. You look at the picture and it looks like he's asleep.
2: To me, it makes no sense to shoot the guy who's asleep. You know, if you're a professional robber and you know how to get in and out, and and were these other home invasions happening around Fairbanks, were they deadly home invasions or were they people getting in and getting out?
1: That's an excellent question. Yes, they were, is the answer to that. There had been a murder earlier in the year of another successful businessman. Two men had come into the house while he and his wife were out sat there waiting for him to get back, drinking his whiskey. Oh. And when he'd come back, they confronted them. They said, we want the money. They've been a struggle and the guy had been shot. And then they'd run away. Now, these two people who Diane said broke into the house, they had whiskey when they were there because that's where the fingerprints were found. And of course, they were looking for money. And it happened afterwards, there was another attack on the, a guy who'd been actually the mayor of Fairbanks. People came around to his house, wanted him to take him to his office to open his safe. And they said... If you don't help us, we'll kill you, like we did Cecil and Tommy Wright. Wow. Police did obviously search the Welles' apartment for weapons, and they did find two guns. Mm-hmm. But they weren't the guns that obviously had fired the fatal bullet. But there were two guns in the apartment. It's very common, gun ownership in Alaska, extremely common. So the two robbers who might have come in, might have come in, they might have heard Cecil grunt awake,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, or shift in his bed and thought, good God, he could have a gun right to hand. I'll get him before he gets me.
2: Well, let's get into the trial. What happens? They've arrested Johnny Warren. They've arrested Diane Wells. He's admitting to an affair but saying, I didn't do any of this. She's not admitting to anything. So they're not tried together, are they? Are they tried separately?
1: Well, that was part of the thing was that um, Johnny's lawyers argued, how can my client and Diane Wells both be charged with first-degree murder? because they both can't pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing. Obviously, they took separate lawyers and the trial was set for into the next year. Johnny came back to Fairbanks. He was brought back. He was extradited. And he came back and he couldn't afford. There was a bail. Uh, Five grand, you had bail and you could stay within Alaska. Ten grand bail, you could leave Alaska. Now, Johnny didn't have 10 grand, so he stayed You know, with with his wife and actually carried on working. He carried on working as a musician. He carried on working in the local grocery store, which was his day job.
2: And his wife stayed with him, even though he has admitted to this affair?
1: They did get divorced a few years later, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. But she said she's going to stand by him. Now, he continued living and working locally. And it seemed that locally, people did not blame him or think that, you know, that he wasn't ostracized Hmm. or, you know, made a pariah. That very much seemed to not be the case at all. Now, whereas Diane, she did have the money for full bail. She left Fairbanks and she came down to L.A., some friends, some family friends, who I'm sure said, look, come down here, get away from like that hornet's nest, come down here for a while. We've got a few months for the trial, bring Mark, we'll put him into school for a few months. We'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So she came down to Los Angeles with Mark. She enrolled Mark in school and was trying to sort of wait before the trial, which was going to be in April. But alas, of course, as any good story, I guess has to be, it didn't turn out that way. This is when the third suspect in the story really comes into prominence. A
2: third person? How is the third person involved with this story? A
1: third suspect, yes. Uh, as I said, I got them, managed to get the notes, the private notes from a deputy marshal at the time. And he, at the time, he was the guy who was sent down to get Johnny from Oakland and bring him back up to face the charges. Is
2: this uh, Frank Worth? Is that who this is?
1: That's it. Frank Worth is his name, Yes. And there's a picture of him in the book. It's an extraordinary picture that I got from the family. is Frank Worth and Johnny Warren standing next to each other. He's got handcuffs on still, and they're laughing like two old friends. Hmm. And Frank Worth, in his private notes and publicly, said, "I don't think Johnny Warren did this." Well, wow. I don't think Johnny Warren killed Cecil. There's another man I'm looking at. There's another man who lives in Fairbanks. He's a local businessman. I'm looking very much into him mm-hmm. And the third suspect was perhaps the most mysterious of all the people involved in this. His name was William Barrias Columbani. born in Guatemala, came into the US, followed his mother. He had an older sister. He was in Anchorage for a while. He was a, a ballroom dance instructor and a ballroom dancing school. He came up to Fairbanks in the early 50s, about a year, year or two after Diane and Cecil were up there. And he lived in the Northwood building. He gave ballroom dancing lessons and Cecil and Diane took lessons from him. Wow. So they got to know him. So he was a friend. They knew him from the building. They knew him socially. Yep. He had dinner with them. He was a friend. And he and Diane seemed to be friends. But what happened was when Diane got out on bail and went down to Los Angeles, a couple of months after, William Columbia moved down to Los Angeles as well. Of course, his mother and his sister lived there. So that was fine. Of course, he might go down and see them. But what happened was he and Diane was sort of inseparable from then on. He was very involved in her life. He seemed to be what I would call like a super friend. He was really friendly. He had helped her after the murder had happened. He'd been there. He'd been helping her. He'd been helping get some money together for her. He tried to help her with childcare for her. They were best friends. They were obviously close. But that, of course, puts him in the frame somewhat Mm -hmm. for what was going on. And that was how he ended up sort of becoming the third suspect. And so she was still writing home and calling home and people were writing to her, friends of her going, look, what is going on with this William Columbity guy? Like, I know he's a friend and everything, but, you know, people are saying that like you're married. People say that you're living together. I mean, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. this is where some other factors came into it. That are again, a lot more understood in a contemporary manner
0: mm-hmm.
1: rather than they were at the time. Diane was taking barbiturates for depression, pretty heavy dosages, and William Columbine and the very nice couple that Diane was staying with were starting to get really worried about her, that she was starting to seem very depressed and seemed to have given up all hope. And in February, actually on Valentine's Day, she left the house where she'd been staying with her friends And she checked into a hotel in Hollywood. And she stayed there for about three weeks. Now, why she checked into a hotel, perhaps she felt she'd outstayed her welcome.
2: With her friends.
1: Yeah, I mean, she'd been there for months. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little much, you know, and she had a son. They were sort of all sharing the care of him. She didn't disappear. Mm -hmm. Maybe she just wanted some privacy anyway. The trial was in April. She'd made it quite clear she wasn't looking forward to the trial. She was really upset about Mark, her son, what was going to happen to him. The trial, the humiliation, the embarrassment, she was really upset about that. And then on March the 8th, March the 9th, she left that hotel, just left her stuff at the hotel, went around the corner to Hollywood and Vine, booked into a what was then a very, very nice hotel there. But she only booked in for the night. She snuck a load of her barbiturates with her, wrote a couple of suicide notes and took all the pills and killed herself.
0: Wow.
1: Which was tragic in every way that you can imagine. And she left several suicide notes that were significant in the fact that two of them were to this William Columbany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of them was thanking him for being a good friend. It's so sad. She had a little um, St. Christopher medallion. She said, you know, I've left the St. Christopher medallion. I won't need it where I'm going. Mm-hmm. But the important point of the note she left for him, reading them, they weren't to a lover. They seemed very much notes to a friend. Mm-hmm. She left a note regarding her son, asking um, some family friends to hopefully adopt him take him on as, as their own child. And then she left kind of, maybe it was the last one she wrote because it's quite difficult to read. It's sort of a rambling, somewhat kind of guilty admission type note.
2: What does that mean? Well, it's not
1: clear. It wouldn't do as a legal document, but it kind of says, you know, I realized that, you know, Cecil is dead. And if I'm guilty for him being dead, then I guess, you know, I'm guilty for having seen Johnny Warren. <sighs> Basically, she admitted, I think, that she had had an affair and that if nothing else, she certainly blamed herself for Cecil's death. Now, whether that means she thinks she did it, because like I say, all the way through, she always stuck to the idea that two people are broken in.
2: But she connected his death to her affair with Johnny Warren. So where does that leave you? It reads
1: more like she feels guilty that he's dead, that he died rather than that she did it. Okay. They did the autopsy. You know, she'd been very heavily medicated, but they also realized that she had recently had either an abortion or a miscarriage.
2: Recently, as in Johnny Warren recently?
1: No, quite recently before her suicide. Oh. Of course, at the time, that was illegal. You could not do that. So she would have had to find somewhere illegally to get that procedure done. And who knows how well that would have been done. And so whether she had any health issues from that, whether she had the trauma from either a termination or a miscarriage, which are both traumatic.
2: Right. Who would the father be?
1: Well, that was the other question about it because I thought, well, let's look at it in a purely cynical way. If it was Cecil's child, which it could have been because this was still, you know, less than nine months after the murder. Mm -hmm. Surely if she was so concerned about her son, at least, and the child that she was carrying, she would have had that child. She would have gone to trial at least several months showing, presumably. Mm -hmm. This is my husband's child. I did not kill him. Don't separate us. Now, if it had been Johnny's child, which again was possible. It wasn't nine months after they had last seen each other. It's possible, of course, that the birth of the child, you might be able to tell the heritage of the child. Also, the fact that she turned up at the trial might have people going, oh, look, she's even pregnant by the guy. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Or there was a third alternative, that maybe she had met someone, you know, in Los Angeles and had got pregnant and had thought, I don't want another child. I also don't want to go to trial pregnant or become pregnant because people are going to judge me
2: terrible position to be in
1: it's a terrible position to be in and you know and plus you know children are expensive what was she going to do for money
2: yeah and ultimately when you now have the main suspect who is dead what happens to the case against johnny warren is william released at some point
1: i'll deal with the william company first yes he was briefly arrested in early 1954 so when he would have been down in la in relation to cecil's murder Mm -hmm. he was in the mix He was arrested briefly. The U.S. deputy, Frank Worth, came down and they arrested him actually up in Hollywood. They questioned him, let him go. He was also questioned after Diane's suicide, mainly because he was the person who identified the body. Hmm. It was looking extremely bad for all the law enforcement agencies. Like, we have to get somebody. Someone has to go to prison in relation to this in some way. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get Johnny Warren because Johnny Warren, they never really had any evidence against him that I could ever find that was anywhere even near circumstantial. That didn't mean that the police didn't leave him alone, though. Hmm. The FBI and the Fairbanks PD, they sent four guns to the FBI for testing up until like 1960 because they had the bullets. They just didn't have the gun. And they kept that for four years. And there were a couple of times, again, 1956 was one of them, where they announced that they were going to try Johnny Warren for the murder. And then they canceled it. So that poor guy, he would have been living on tenderhooks until October 1960. That was when he was officially exonerated.
2: So what do you think happened? What happened to Cecil Wells that
1: night? Well, I think... Based on my interviews with the family, and this would be grandchildren and children of Cecil Wells and Diane's children and, and other people who were around at the time. There are still some people who are, who are still alive mercifully. And they talked to me about it and they said, Cecil was a very jealous man. Hmm. They gave me several examples, specific examples of his, of his jealousy. And he could turn quite nasty when he'd had a few drinks. Several people told me that. I guess he was what we would call in the 50s like a man's man. Mm-hmm. He went out to work. He came home and he expected dinner on the table and a cocktail. He didn't really do a lot of nappy changing. Now, that was very common in the in the 50s. That was very much the societal structure in many ways. And it's, it's still common today. He's a bit of a man's man. He was the breadwinner. He could turn a little bit nasty after a drink. And I did get a couple of eyewitness accounts from people who had seen him hit her
0: wow.
1: and be abusive to her and other people. And so what I think happened on the night without going into all the details. I mean, the last chapter of the book, I kind of do a fictionalized version of what I think happened Mm -hmm. because I lay the book out chronologically. And then the last chapter is the one where I go, right, based on all the evidence I found, I'm going to make this a bit of a story in the last chapter of what I think happened on the last night. And what I think happened was they had been out. They had a big day the next day, a big social event. They had a late guest for supper, which was really late. They'd been drinking in the Northwood bar. They'd been drinking in the apartment. Diane got up in the middle of the night and was sick in the toilet, sick down in pajamas. You know, we've all done that. And I think probably Cecil wasn't too amused. He was angry that she'd woken him up. And I think either at that time or earlier, probably earlier, they had had an altercation and he had hit her. Mm -hmm. And I think when she got up in the middle of the night to be sick or later in the morning, she went into the bathroom and she looked and she had two black eyes. Or one black eye. And she was like, well, obviously I'm not going out today, or I'm obviously not going out of the house for the next few days because, you know, she had apparently tried to cover marks on her face with makeup before. And I think she was angry. And I think there was possibly a gun in the house. Maybe I think she probably meant to just scare him, you know, to shoot him and come up and scare the bejesus out of him. Having said that, it doesn't matter if it was the first or the 50th time he'd hit her. I have sympathy if she'd gone and said, you bastard, you're never doing that to me again.
2: Well, and, and the other point is she shot twice.
1: Well, that's the thing. He he might have made some sort of noise when she first shot the f- the first shot might have missed. And then she thought, Oh my God, if he gets up, he's not just gonna hit me in the face. You know, he's gonna beat me to death. I mean, domestic abuse was not even a term. Yeah. People didn't even know what that was in the fifties. And again, it's a very small city. Everyone knew each other's business. And as I found out at the time, alcoholism, especially, and domestic abuse was very much something considered to be behind closed doors. You didn't get involved in it. Mm-hmm. Even the police didn't. And so I think she probably meant to frighten him and shot him. And then she's like, why isn't he getting up? Or why isn't he saying something? Or, oh, what have I done? And then she's like, oh my God, he's dead. Okay. And then I think she probably made a couple of calls, probably to William Columbley would have been one of them because he lived in the building
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he was a good friend of theirs. She probably called another couple of friends of theirs. They came around. And they said, look, what are we going to do? And I think it was amongst them where the gun ended up, because that was, again, the big revelation from the uh, the private journal of the deputy marshal, Frank Worth. Mm-hmm. He said in the journal that he thought the gun, the murder weapon, ended up in the river. The hmm. China is the name of the river that runs sort of through Fairbanks and around it. It's like a block and a half from the Northwood building. And he thinks that what happened, and it, and it makes sense, they left. She went next door, called the police called the ambulance. She was hysterical. She was upset. That's certainly true. Mm -hmm. They call an ambulance. They put her in the ambulance. She insists that Cecil goes first. The doctor says, you need to go. Cecil's already gone. Hmm. She gets in the ambulance. The two friends turn up, a husband, a couple, and the wife says, I'll go with her to hospital. But she walks to hospital. She doesn't go in the ambulance. She walks to hospital across the bridge to the hospital, which I thought, well, that's odd. I mean, Maybe, maybe the ambulance is really small Mm -hmm. and they couldn't fit her in, you know, but then I'm like, I don't know how much, what kind of ambulance that is where they couldn't fit, you know, more than two people in it. Yeah. But what Frank Worth, the deputy marshal said is that he thinks, and he doesn't name her by name, but there's no other person it could be. He thinks that possibly they said, look, take this with you, walk across the bridge, drop it over. Yeah. Wow. And she dropped it into the river. It's a big conspiracy. It's a bit of a conspiracy because they never found the gun. Wow. And when I was in Fairbanks in October giving some talks about the book, I mentioned this idea and someone put their hand up and said, oh, yes, I knew that lady. She would never have walked anywhere. (laughs) She never walked anywhere. She was very proven proper. She never walked anywhere. She would never have walked to the hospital. I mean, this is seven o'clock in the morning in October.
2: Didn't you say, though, that Cecil had guns, but the gun that killed him was not one of those guns?
1: No, there were two guns in the house. And it was not one of those guns.
2: So did he have a gun that they said, wait, there's a gun that's missing?
1: There's no way to know because you didn't have to register guns in those days. Okay. Didn't need a license, didn't need a register.
2: Maybe she bought a gun without him knowing
1: it for protection from him. She might've had one herself. Yeah. I mean, John. that was one of the things that Johnny said early on when he was arrested. He said he carried a gun. And people said, well, why do you carry a gun? He did say, you know, well, if I ever got caught by Cecil in a difficult situation, I would probably want some protection. And you think, oh, Oh, really? Then perhaps he did shoot it. Perhaps Cecil caught them, you know, in a compromising situation and there was a struggle and, a, yeah. you know what I mean? Or something like that.
2: Yeah. And actually, you were just reminding me, I was just talking about a case with Paul Holes about a musician who always had a gun on these late night gigs because he was getting out at three in the morning and walking around by himself with money in his pocket.
1: That's exactly what it is. I mean, he was he was a gigging musician. He'd be out there at night. Yeah, You, you have to remember, these aren't areas that are, you know, fully paid, fully lit. He could get stuck in the middle of the night somewhere. He's coming out at two o'clock in the morning. I've been to Fairbanks. Like The downtown is really small and it's quite compact and you can walk around it because it's quite small. But most people, almost everybody, lives out And you get out there at nighttime, it's completely dark, and you're completely on your own. There wasn't an almost out of streetlights. It wasn't unusual that he would have a gun. It wasn't unusual that anybody would have a gun. Women, in the same way today, don't necessarily carry a gun. And there was some talk at the time of this particular pistol that they thought it was like, they called it like it's a woman's pistol. Dainty. That I was like, that doesn't look dainty to me.
2: Do you think if she had said and had people testify... If she said, I did it, he was abusive, look what he did to my face, this was self-defense. In Anchorage, beautiful white woman who is very Hollywood-esque, do you think that she would have gotten off on this idea of domestic violence leading to self-defense?
1: Problem is, he said, she said, isn't it?
2: She's got two black eyes, though. And you've got people saying she's being abused. They've seen it, you know.
1: She has, but it's always a he said, she said. And secondly, very important, influential rich man as a husband. Yeah. Very, very important. He was head of like Alaska's Chamber of Commerce. I mean, he was like a big player in, and not just in Fairbanks. Like he was well-known in Anchorage. He was well-known across Alaska. So you bring that up as a court case, he's dead, but let's assume he had survived. Right. Or even if he had died, if it had got to trial, she said, no, 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 he was beating me up. Those black eyes were front of him. And they'd have gone, okay, but you still went in and shot him though. Yeah. Oh, well, he'd abused me. It'd been the 10th time it had happened. Like, any witnesses for that? Why didn't you call the police? And you know, because the police would have come around like often happens today. They've gone, this is a domestic issue.
2: Yeah.
1: This really needs to be something that you sort sorted amongst yourselves.
2: Hmm. What is the moral of this story as we wrap this up? What's the takeaway?
1: The takeaway, I'm af- I'm afraid, is that I found, which was which was how it affected me, I guess, the most. Because again, you know, I was I was what they call like a stranger journalist to this. You know, I didn't have any family connection. You know, I'm not not Alaskan, I'm not American, you know, I'd never been to Alaska, is generational trauma. Hmm. You know, trauma grows, goes through the generations with something like this. Everyone I spoke to here. Everyone, whether they were friends, whether they were family, whether they were grandchildren, every one of them, they'd been affected by it in some way and always negatively. It's not just the one moment, let's say it was a domestic abuse, violence issue that turned into a murder. It happens very frequently. But the spider web that comes out of it the family members, the friends, all the things that it affects, it affects all of them. Hmm. All of them, it affected them in a different way, either directly because it's like, well, my my father was killed by my mother. Or someone says, you know, well, I had a grandfather who, you know, I looked him up and he had a really important, interesting life. My family never talked about him. I have a daughter now and she asked me about my dad and I'll go, I don't know, we haven't really talked for 30 years. You know, he doesn't talk about his life it affected everybody. And like I say, I wasn't connected, but there there were definitely times when I was sitting down talking to these people and to Diane's children who are both still alive. You know, I was talking to them and I was just thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I asking them all of these things and bringing up all these unhappy memories. But it was because they were all saying to me, well, we don't know. This is just like a gap in our lives. You know, Sandra, who was Diane's eldest child, she said, "Um, I was about five or six years old and my mother dropped me off at school and I never saw her again. And the next thing I knew was she was dead. Do they believe your theory? You know, that was the thing I was most terrified about was that when the book came out, that they would read it and they would read it and disagree. Hmm. Now, obviously, it, it's very difficult for a child to say of a, of a mother, you know, or I think my mother was, was a murderer, or I think, in Diane's case, I think my mother killed herself. But the people who have replied to me in depth, have said, you know, it's really rational and reasonable and I understand it and it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And you've assembled a lot of information. I really appreciate it. It's really helped. For all the ooh -ah we put around closure, a couple of people did say that to me. And I said, look, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, I know there's stuff in here you probably don't want to read. And I know it doesn't really bring anybody back, but hopefully it might make you at least have some sort of idea of what happened or what you think happened, why it happened because everyone had all these different ideas and different theories. And I'd say, look, honestly, that was not what happened. Hmm. You know, I was talking to people who are younger than I am. Johnny had a child very late in life, in his 60s, and was only around for about 15 years before he died. And he was about the only person I talked to who was like, I had a really good time with my dad. You know, he was really nice to me. He never talked about what happened in Alaska, never, Hmm. never mentioned. Why would you? But he said that when his father died, they found a copy of the Life magazine that had the piece about murder in it. So he kept it, but he never talked about it. Why would you? But he was the only person connected to this who said, you know, I had a good time with my dad. Like, I like my dad. We got on well, you know. The rest of them were all like, you know, my dad was difficult. My dad disappeared from my life and was never talked about again. I thought my mother was a murderer. You know, it was never talked about. And who knows how much it helped, but it was just like to say, "You you know what? It wasn't like that. You know, your mother had a very difficult life. And, you know, it ended really sadly for her.
2: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer, artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.